You see that in life, everything changes over time. For example, people change over time. Physically, which is the most obvious, either you grow sideways, frontways, upwards. Okay. Most obvious, physically, we change over time. Intellectually, intellectually, we change. And for believers, obviously, spiritually, we change. Besides people, change over time. Places change over time as well. For those who are uh, familiar, in the past, we have the Esplanade. It used to be uh, just a... Just by the sea, and you have uh, some uh, place that you can walk around, you have a food store, we used to call satay club, so on and so forth. Now if you go to Esplanade, the, theme, the, the, the name given is, is uh, two very prickly uh, buildings, right? probably named after, or at least a design with the concept of the, the most uh, famous uh, king of the fruit in Asia, at least uh, king of the fruit in Asia. Okay? Sometimes we call this the durian. So people change over time, uh, places change over time. Now, very interestingly, as well, processes change over time. You all heard it in the news very recent days. The new IPPT, Individual Physical Proficiency Test, has been revised by the SAF, Singapore Armed Forces, focusing on the three toughest tests. The three toughest tests for our soldiers. Push up. Sit up. And a 2.4 click or 2.4 kilometers run. Those chin up. Shuttle run, standing broad jump. Those are not so tough. They'll be phased out. Many of us heave a sigh of relief. We'll get the goal of what? Processes change over time. Everything change over time, isn't it? Well, not everything. There's one thing that never change, and you are born into it. I'm talking about this little plastic card that can be found in your wallet or in your purse. Or those who have a... Uh, problem with their eyesight, like myself, this is called an identity card. It's pink in color for Singaporeans. It tells you and others who you are. But more than that, it tells you that you are a Singaporean. And there are many nationalities in our congregation this morning. The same plastic card may be of a different design and color, but it serves the same function. Different family names, different faces, different age, gender. Your identity card, identity card reminds you of who you are. For those who are Singaporeans, our national pledge begins with uh, these words, we the citizens of Singapore. In other words, we are the people of Singapore. Now when I think of the church, I'm reminded we, the people of God. The people of God, this is a description that in the Old Testament applies to the Israelites and in the New Testament applies to Christians. Now, what is this unique distinction between the people of God and the rest of the world? I wrestle with the basic question of the Christian faith. What really does it mean to be the people of God? And we need the answer with certainty and clarity. Now, this could be a basic problem in the life of the modern church. We don't know who we are or what we are supposed to be as the people of God. We do not know how to be an expression of the people of God because we really don't know what it means to be the people of God. If it means something more than or other than being good, believing in Jesus Christ, and being faithfully attending church, then most of us don't know what it is. When I began asking myself with seriousness what it really meant 
be the people of God, other questions came along. Other questions came along. For example, why was God calling a people in the first place? Why was God call, calling a people in the first place? And what was He calling them to? What was God calling a people to? And what was He calling them for? So this led me back to the beginning of creation. When humanity, of its own free will, voluntarily sinned and separated from God. But God on His part set about His purpose of bringing humanity back into a valid relationship with Himself. And so how is God going to accomplish this divine eternal purpose? How is God going to, to, to carry out this divine eternal purpose being God? He could have sent angels to be the instruments of His purpose, isn't it? Or He could have caused the very stones to cry out and be His witness. We heard about this phrase. It comes from Luke 19, verse 37. As, as Jesus was drawing near already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and they praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty work that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your, your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if this were silent, the very stones would cry out. God could have caused the very stones to cry out and be his witness. But instead, God chose another plan. He began by calling a man Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, verse 1, Genesis chapter 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now take note of the highlighted red words. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's basic call to Abraham was a call to mission. It is true that God said, I will bless you, but the essence of the call is to engage, is to engage in something with God and for God. It's to engage in something with God and for God. God was calling a people because there was a brokenness between God and His creation. And He was calling an instrument in the form of a person, Abraham to be God's mouthpiece. It was this call to mission that was at the center of the covenant into which God entered with Abraham. God was calling Abraham to participate in a mighty eternal purpose and Abraham was to avail himself as an instrument in whom and through whom God could accomplish this redemptive mission to reach out. God was engaged in a redemptive task in the world and he was calling a people who would give their lives to join God in this redemptive mission. Thus, God's basic call to His people, all of us, is a call to mission, not a call to receive earthly riches or to accept these tangible physical gifts. Now, God's mission is passed down through succeeding generations. In Exodus 19 verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, this is what this is God saying, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, God says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Take note of the highlighted words, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God says. And so Moses came and called 
the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now God is saying to the Israelites, I am calling you to be a kingdom of priests. A people of priests. That means your function is in terms of my redemptive purpose. God says you are to be instruments to seek, to bring others and God together. This is why I'm calling you, God says. It is to this mission I am calling you. Will you do it? And the people say, yeah, we go for it. And we will do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But as so often happens, they misunderstood the very nature of their call. They thought that God had called them primarily to bless them. They thought that God had called them simply to be in some special relationship with God as His people. That God had called them primarily to give them something. And so they accepted God's call and said, no problem, we agree. They misunderstood why they were called and the purpose of their call. In the Old Testament time, God, through His prophets and other writings in the Old Testament, came time and time again to the people to try to get them to understand understand the true nature of why they were called and to what they are called. They are called to reach out to the other people and point them to God. But they fail to understand or to carry out what God has assigned to them. Yes, we will do it. Now this morning, I want to lead us to look at the passage that talks about God's mission to reach the lost. I invite all of us to bow with me as we go to God in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word this morning. We know, Lord, that uh, it is through your word that we get to understand who you are. It is through your word, Lord, that we can understand and, and know your way, your will, and for today, this morning, your work. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. We ask that you will be with us as we look at your word and study together. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There are three parts to today's uh, study. The first part talks about prayer. If you have your bulletin, it's in your, uh, the outline is there. The first part talks about prayer as the starting point. The second part talks about promise. And the third part will talk about participation. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. The first point for our notice this morning is prayer. Concern for the lost and Christ is the answer. Verses 1 to 4. Brothers, this is what Paul says. Paul writes, My heart's desire and prayer to, to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The starting point for embarking on God's mission is prayer. It's prayer. Now, this poses a question. A question on God's sovereignty. Have you ever struggled with the idea that since God is sovereign, meaning that God has absolute control over everything, then why did Paul, verse 1, tells us that he's praying for the Jews, that they might be saved? If God is already sovereign, why do we need to pray? After all, Paul is very clear in his teaching that God is sovereign and in chapter 9 of Romans, he writes about sovereign election. In other words, the question is this, 
if election is settled in eternity past, election of, of our God's people already settled in eternity past, how can prayers, our prayers in the present time, have an impact on elections outworking? Already settled in eternity past, but right now we pray for the people. You mean that prayer can change God's mind? He already sovereignly elected. Then we pray to change God's mind? What is Paul saying? Now the answer is this. Paul saw no contradiction between God's election and our prayer. Because only a sovereign God, only a sovereign God who has the right to unilaterally move in the affairs of humanity, only this God can answer prayer. Because unilaterally, among unbelievers, we do not know beforehand who is the elect and will come to faith when they hear the gospel. But we can know that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God ordains not only the ends or the final result of our salvation, but also the means or the ways. So God ordains not only the ends, He ordains also the means which the ends are to be achieved. That means God ordains that our prayers for the lost are part of the means. Our prayer for the lost are part of the means. The other two, as I mentioned, will be the promise which we will get to in point two and participation we will get to in point three. Now verse two, the Jews' zeal and sincerity did not lead them into salvation. The broader principle here is that many sincere religious people we are wrong in our beliefs. It's, it's a question about righteousness. How good is good enough for God? We know that God's standard is very high. All have sinned and fall short. So the Jews' zeal and sincerity do not lead them to salvation. It doesn't work that way. Now verse 3, many Jews did not believe in Christ because they failed to submit to God's righteousness. And instead what they did is that they attempted to be righteous before God on the basis of their own works. They believe that if I'm more faithful, if I'm more obedient, I'm this and that, I can achieve the righteousness that is fall short of the glory of God, I can achieve that. No. Only Christ fulfilled the exacting requirements of God. Jesus Christ is a Paschal Lamb, the ultimate and perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? It means that Christ is both its fulfillment, fulfillment of the law as well as its termination. Christ came to fulfill as well as terminate the law. Any system of salvation based on performance is excluded. God's mission begins with prayer. When we talk about we want to reach out to the lost, how many of us are really on our knees praying? It is good to have an idea we want to do this for the Lord, but it begins with prayer. Now the question is this, so who do we pray for? I like a certain group of people, certain uh, demographic of the same kind, same uh, uh, birds of the feather kind of thing. Who do we pray for? Our prayer is not based on our wish list. Our prayer is not based on our wish list, what we wish to have, who I, we like, who we do not like. Although that is not entirely wrong, but more accurately, our prayer is based on the biblical teaching that God wants us to remember his wish list. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 6. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be safe and come to the knowledge of the truth. So when we pray, it's not because ah, we like a certain group of people. Oh, we like a certain uh, 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 things to be done. We pray for them. There's some sort of uh, quite, uh, affirmation, some sort of affinity with them. No. Right? It is God's wish list that we are praying Prayer is the starting point as we embark on God's mission. 
But there is more. As people of God carrying out God's mission, God reminded us afresh that He is actually fulfilling His promise, which leads us to point number two. God is fulfilling His promise. Can you imagine that? Yes, we pray for all to be saved, but actually God Himself is fulfilling His promise. Fulfilled in Christ and faith in Christ. The promise of salvation is found in Christ alone. Nobody else. At the same time, the promise is for all who have faith in Christ. Verse, let's look at verse 5. Verse 5, Romans chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Again, please take note of the highlighted words. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul quoted Moses on both sides of the issue. Righteousness that is based on the law, righteousness that is based on faith. In the Old Testament, keeping the law was the source of life for the Israelites. But the problem was that no one, no one could keep it necessitating a permanent redemption from the curse of the law, Galatians 3. Yet, okay, yet, God knows that they cannot fulfill it. Yet, even when the law was the standard for the spiritual life, God did not make it difficult for the Israelites to exercise obedience. Where they, where they fail, God forgive them. Right? So, righteousness that is based on the law, righteousness that is based on faith. Verse 9. But, verse but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, the phrase, word of faith, is not a word, a particular word, one word in the literal sense, but a message. Right? So it's a message. In essence, a condensed summary of the gospel. It is the message that a person must receive in order to become a Christian. Specifically in the case of Israel, it is a message that steps at the heart of their religious belief. What is this thing that steps at their heart and pricks their conscience? What is this? Let's look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For a Jew to confess that Jesus is Lord would be to ascribe deity to Jesus, meaning that Jesus is God. This is unthinkable. It is the very source of outrage that led to Jesus' crucifixion. So the phrase, the word of faith, is a message. Specifically, in the case of Israel, steps at their heart. Now, the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fundamental. This, Paul arranged his word in, uh, we call this the for those uh, theologians, we call this an ABBA format, possibly to help his reader remember better as well as to teach correct theology. Right? Verse uh, 9 and 10. Confess. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and then you believe, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then we go back to believe again. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So Paul uses this ABBA format. Confess, believe, believe, confess. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now in verse 11 to 13, Paul cited biblical support for the universal offer. This is a universal offer of salvation. Salvation is for both Jews and the Greeks, in this case the Gentiles, since the same Lord is rich in mercy to all. Whether you are from a different ethnic or social class, young or old, male or female, the promise is for all who call on the name of the Lord. This is actually taken from Joel's promise, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be safe. Now you recall that the Bible teaches that all have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. If all have sinned, it is also only consistent that God's salvation should come to all. Romans 3.22 Though Paul does not mention it, he is quoting from the Old Testament promise given to the prophet Joel that anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now all this talk about salvation to the Jews and Gentiles re-exposes, it re-exposes Paul's identity as a people of God in his heart. Paul's desire to enlist the, the church at Rome as a partner in his task is the primary reason for his letter to the Christians in Rome. Paul wants to make sure that they understand the gospel he has been called to declare. But the gospel is not just for the Gentiles, that means the believers in Rome. It is for the Jews as well. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 1, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13, But calling on the name of the Lord does not happen in a vacuum. This is where the, 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 the challenge comes in. Calling on the name of the Lord does not happen in a vacuum. Paul outlines the role of God's people. You are to participate in God's work in bringing the gospel to the lost, which is our third and final point. Participating in God's mission to reach the lost is a great challenge. You have to bear in mind that we are engaged in a constant spiritual warfare. It's not the lowering of the IPPT standard. We're not talking about that. Satan does not sit idly by and let you pass easily, let you be involved in God's work. It won't happen that way. Participation, responsibility, and respectability. Let's read on to the last two verses. Verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Now what must occur for someone to call on the name of the Lord? What must occur for someone, an unbeliever, someone who has never known about Christ, what must occur for that person to call on the name of the Lord? Well, the answer is this, someone must first be sent to proclaim the gospel message. And then the listeners or the recipients must pay attention and believe. In the absence of this, any of these factors, no one can call on the name of the Lord. We'll unpack this uh, verse. What must occur for someone to call upon the name of the Lord? Verse 14, first part. Believing requires the faith to call on the name of the Lord. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? In the Old Testament, calling on the name of the Lord was a metaphor of worship and prayer. No one, no one can call out to God who has not believed in God. Maybe you call to the wrong God. So unless you believe in the God, Yahweh, then you can call to Him. Now, believing requires faith to call on the name of the Lord. And faith requires hearing. 
So, you know, to call, I need faith now, but faith requires hearing. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? The verse says, more than anything else, this question is the crux of all missiological activity since the first century. God has ordained the people, you and I. The people have to hear or read or otherwise understand the contents of the gospel in order to be saved. Which means that the one who knows the gospel must communicate to the one who does not know it. Believing requires faith. Faith requires hearing. Hearing requires preaching. And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? Now, since no media, no other media except the human voice was of practical value in spreading the gospel in the first century, preaching is Paul's method, as well as God's method of choice. And yet, in our media-rich contemporary society today, has anything replaced preaching as the most effective way to communicate the gospel? We thank God for the printed page. Right, we had the printer page, uh, brochures, so and so forth. And even the cutting-edge PowerPoint presentation of the gospel circling the globe, you find this on YouTube. But it is still the human voice that cracks with passion, the human eye contact that speaks of gratitude from receiving the gospel, that reaches the needy human heart, penetrates all the defense. Go to the person. Now, preaching requires sending. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Even when God's servants were unwilling, for example, Jonah in the Old Testament, God has been sending the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. God invites us to participate in God's work. It is a responsibility. This responsibility is not given to anyone and everyone. Okay? Not given to everyone and anyone, only to the people of God. Only those who are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus are privileged to render good works or service. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19-20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So God invites us to participate in his work, a responsibility not given to everyone except the people of God. Let's move on to the last verse. Verse 15. As it is written... Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Participation is a responsibility given to the people of God. At the same time, it's a respectability. I have to be very careful here. When you say respectability, means what? Are we going after those uh, worldly uh, uh, affirmation, a pat on the back, a praise from the lips? No. Paul is saying, friends, it is the right thing to do. And he takes his hat off those who preach the good news who share their Christian testimonies of God's saving grace that had come into their lives. In today's communication, the emoticon, John will do. Alright? If you, if you are aware, of today we just say, right, emoticon. We pause here to think about this first carefully. Now, do we accord the respectability due to our missionaries? How often do you remember them in your prayers while they faithfully serve? We should faithfully support them through prayer participation as well, wherever possible, when the opportunity arises. One who receives this word and by it salvation, receives along with it the duty of passing this word on. When there is no mission, 
there is no church. Where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. God's mission begins with a commitment to pray. A prayer according to God's wish list that all might be saved. A prayer that is based on God's promise which gives us the great motivation to participate in His work. Let me relate a story to you. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one-time pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, told a story by a missionary in Western Africa. They illustrate the heart of one who is gripped by God's mission to reach out to the lost. Now, the story goes like this. It seems that an African man who had become a Christian believer was also afflicted by the dreaded elephantiasis disease. Now, elephantiasis disease is a disease that afflicts your lower limbs from the knee down to the, your foot. Okay? Now, this condition hardens and enlarges the flesh so that they often appear as solid clumps of flesh from the knees down. Right? Almost like tree trunk stumps. Sometimes about 12 inches, this is about a foot long, uh, or 15 inches in diameter. Okay? It is painful. It is restrictive. It is smelly. It is bleeding. But when you have elephantiasis disease, simple walking is a laborious challenge. But the man was so grateful for the grace of God that had come into his life that he thought nothing of his painful condition. He went from one little African hut in the village, from one little African hut to another, sharing the good news of the gospel, knowing that none could believe unless they heard. None of them could believe unless they heard the gospel. And so this man shuffled. He shuffled and he hobbled on his afflicted limbs day after day until all the entire uh, village has heard the good news. Once he has evangelized his entire village, he began a painful daily, okay, daily journey to a village two miles away because he cannot bear the thought of that someone else in that village had not heard the gospel. So what he would do is that he would start early in the morning and walk to the nearby village, going from one hut again, one little hut to another hut. Then when night is about to fall, he would walk home. This process he repeated until every hut in the village had heard the good news of the gospel. That's not the end of the story. With no one else to tell about Christ, he asked his pastor and the missionary for advice about going to the next closest village, a larger village, 10 miles away. His pastor and missionary both were concerned about his health and they discouraged him from considering the journey. It is too much. 10 miles. But one day his relatives awoke to find him missing. He's gone. Now it was not until later that, that the full story came out. What actually happened? Because the inhabitants of that village, 10 miles away, related the story. Now apparently it took the man until noon to travel the 10 mile distance to the new village. And when he arrived, his leathery stumps, his legs were bleeding, swollen. Not wasting time even to eat, he spent the rest of the day in the village going from hut to hut, telling people about the grace of God. Now the sun was setting. So he had to make his way back to his own village. Somehow he made it through the pitch black jungle and stopped at the missionary house at midnight. 
the missionary who was also a doctor, summoned help and they lifted the poor, by now semi-conscious man into his house to nurse the bleeding legs. The missionary doctor related how his own tears, his own tears mingled with the cotton bandages which he used to wash the beautiful feet, the stinking feet, swollen feet, the bleeding feet of the gospel messenger. Without counting the cost to himself, this poor man lived out the words of the apostles in verse 14 and 15. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Feet that in the eyes of the world could best be described as horrific have become the most beautiful feet of one who brings the good news. Romans 10 verse 15. It is ironic. It is ironic that many Christians who go to great lengths to dress our feet in the world's latest fashion have not the beauty of a diseased African saint who could not rest until all within his reach had heard the gospel. We are not talking about 20,000 miles away, 10 miles. We are not talking about him crossing the, the ocean to Singapore. But someone who could not rest until all within his reach had heard the gospel. How beautiful are our feet today in Grace Baptist Church? How beautiful are the feet of the Church of Jesus Christ at large in Singapore and, and beyond the shores? May we be people of passion more than fashion as we take the good news of the gospel to a waiting world. You have heard the message. God's mission is to reach out to the lost and it begins with the commitment to prayer. And this prayer is based on God's promise. But the mission is not complete if you do not see the need to participate in it. Today marks the end of Missions Emphasis Month for Grace Baptist Church. But for some, it marks the beginning of your heart's decision inside your heart. While it is a personal decision, personal, but it is also a church decision, Grace Baptist Church on the whole must see the importance of participating in God's mission. You saw the poster? At every leaf, every, every leaf level, community, workplace, nation, where is God calling you to? I want to give everyone the opportunity to respond to God. We have heard the message. What about an opportunity to respond. So please bow your head and close your eyes and listen carefully. Please consider the message you heard today. Don't leave the worship hall without making a decision. Don't leave the worship hall without making a decision one way or the other. This is what I invite you all to do right now. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. I do not need you to do anything, anything visible. I do not need you to do that. You do not have to raise your hands. You do not have to nod your head. You do not have to do anything to signal to me your decision. But you need to do one thing. Only one thing in your heart. In the utmost privacy where nobody, where nobody but only God knows. Ask yourself. You ask yourself, have I given my life to embark on God's mission? Or am I holding back something? Have I given my life or am I holding back something? God, you know my fears. You know the challenges that I face. 
but God, I want to be a true people of God. That's what you call me to. Whom you have set aside to reach out to the lost. I don't know how. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know, Lord, that I want to be used by you for your mission. My friends, I invite you to make a decision in your heart to give your life to Jesus. Be the people of God to fulfill God's mission. All of us are quiet. It's about eyes are closed. And in absolute honesty before God, make a decision. You don't know what or where God will lead you into, but that is not your problem. God will take care of it. But you have to make a decision. That is your problem. Yes, I give myself to participate in God's mission. Or, no, I won't. No one can force you. No one will know your decision today. Myself, as I stand before you in the pulpit, I am also making the same decision today, telling God that I want to recommit myself to participate in His mission. Would you be thinking of the same? Make a decision one way or the other for the Lord today. Now let us pray. God, we thank you that you have called us to be your people. It is a unique call, one that allows us to be your instrument to reach out to those who need to hear the gospel. Be with us as we endeavor to bring the gospel to the lost in our community, in our workplace, and in the nations beyond our shore. For we ask all this in Jesus' name.